Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Andrew Lawton. Most of you who are Canadian will recognize his name because he's one of Canada's best independent journalists. Uh, most recently, he was up at the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa covering it live from the front lines, which is how he ended up catching a face full of pepper spray. He's one of Canada's best political commentators, in my opinion. He works now for True North, but he's hosted his own radio show where he's interviewed prime ministers and other senior politicians. And he's been a friend of mine for quite a long time. And so because there's so many things going on in Canadian politics at the moment, you've got a deal being cut between NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You have various narratives coming out on the Freedom Convoy from the CBC, from the Toronto Star, trying to specifically frame what happened. And then, of course, you have the conservative leadership race, which we discussed with Josh Gilman on last week's show. And I wanted to talk to somebody who could really get into the nitty gritty. At this point, Andrew Lawton has interviewed all of the major leadership contenders, I believe, except for Patrick Brown at this point. And so he's got a lot of great insights on that. He can also get into more detail on leadership than Josh Gilman, because Josh Gilman generally works for a leadership candidate and is less free to talk about those things. So last week's conversation was more about process. And this week, we're going to start talking about the Freedom Convoy. And then we're going to start talking about the conservative leadership race and where we're at in Canadian politics with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So this is my conversation with Andrew Lawden of True North News. All right, Andrew, the last time a lot of our listeners here would have would have heard of you is they were following the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa. And we've had one guest on to talk about the convoy, but you had more of a bird's eye view because you were there reporting for True North. We we bumped into each other actually in Ottawa on the first day of the crackdown. What was it like covering one of the, the only interesting events in recent Canadian history? Well, I think that in and of itself is an important thing there because I, I knew from the get-go when all these trucks were headed to Ottawa from different points, it wasn't just one convoy, it was a number of them that I, I had to be there because I, I just knew at the beginning this was something very unique and something that was going to be quite special in Canadian politics. And I, I didn't know exactly how it was going to unfold, but I, I wanted to be there. And I, I had the privilege of being in Ottawa for the for the beginning and the end of it, really. And it, it was fascinating because Oftentimes, people on the right especially will talk about media bias and media misrepresentations, and and it's done in a very abstract way almost, where I I felt, though, that I, I couldn't completely articulate to people just how different, how night and day the media conception of this was from what it felt like on the ground. So ultimately, I found that just being on the ground was great for me because it was the only accurate way to get a sense of of what was happening. And then I tried to relate that to my audience. How would you characterize it? Because one of the things I found the most difficult about the convoy was that it, 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 in many ways, sort of defied characterization. And it's because there had been a single available narrative on the COVID pandemic the entire time. And as such, the, the Freedom Convoy really turned into a lightning rod for everybody who disagreed with lockdowns or mandates or vaccination itself for any reason. So you had anybody, you know, anybody and everybody from those who had lost people because of uh, of mental illness, those who had lost their jobs, those who just opposed mandates, those who also opposed vaccination. You had people there that I would be very politically aligned with. You had some people there, um, you know, who were conspiracy theorists. Like almost everything you said about the convoy 
would be correct because it wasn't a single group with a single agenda there. Would you, would you jive with that description? Yeah. And and I think that's true of most protests, certainly protests on the left. I mean, if you give a left-wing protest a couple of days, it becomes the same as every other left-wing protest because it just becomes again, this, this, this blank slate for indigenous protesters and, you know, pro-Palestine protesters and Marxists and all of that. It didn't exactly look like that. In fact, it didn't at all look like that because for the most part, there was a fairly unified core set of values. I mean, obviously, you have a range of people in terms of what's brought them to that issue and what's brought them to, to generally speaking, that cause of freedom and resisting vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and all that. But but there was a bit of a Rorschach effect just because it didn't really have, as much as the media like to pretend otherwise, a hierarchy and a centralized leadership. There, there were certainly spheres of power like around the money and around the logistics and around some of the messaging. But but this was very grassroots and it became, as a result, difficult to put into one particular box to form a, a neat narrative about what the convoy was, let alone who. So when you went there to, to, to report on it, there was there was the starting and then there was the, the very end, the, the, the two day crackdown that, that you were there from, which is incidentally where you got pepper sprayed. So could you see any distinctive difference between the first massive day with rallies on the hill and this sort of organic but quite complex community that had sprung up by the time you went again? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, at the very first weekend, there was a lot of there was a lot of what is this going on? People that showed up just to check it out. A lot of families, people that went out for a day that they weren't in it for the long haul. They were not truckers, but they were there to support. The last weekend, what was interesting is that police had tried to neutralize that group. Police had tried to make sure that no one, none of the weekenders could come into town. So they set up before the weekend, these perimeters, they were asking anyone under the Emergencies Act what they were doing, where they were going. And some people got through, like I met some people that like parked like 10 kilometers away in Quebec and just hiked in because that was the only way they could get in. But on the last weekend, it was a lot more of the diehards, people that had been there for quite a lengthy period of time, people that were all in. A, a fair bit of anger, because again, you, you have a protest that's not achieved its overarching vision. You've got Justin Trudeau inflaming this time and time again, most recently at this point with the Emergencies Act. So there was in that final weekend a lot more tension in both directions, definitely. So it, it still had the party atmosphere. You still had the hot tub. You still had the bouncy castles, but there was a a bit more of an edge to it because again, people knew something was about to happen. So how does it feel to get pepper sprayed? Well, not pleasant. It was brutal because I, I actually re-pepper sprayed myself inadvertently because I didn't realize that it lingers on your clothes. So later on, I like had to wipe my face with my toque, which I had been wearing. And that one I couldn't blame on the Ottawa police, unfortunately. So here's one of the things that it's really interesting is right now, one of the reasons I wanted to chat with this about this with you is that you see these sort of competing narratives coming out because once once the convoy's over of course and it's a historical event that has triggered copycats all over the world you have this desire of people to sort of define it and to ensure that people remember it the way they saw it rather than the way it was so you've got justin ling's massive essay in in, in the toronto star talking about inside the convoy where he focuses on the conspiratorial element and he focuses on on the least pleasant people that he could find stuff being said in the telegram chats etc 
Then you've got the CBC's documentary, The Fifth Estate, that came out on this, and they interviewed a couple of guys, but of course they weren't interviewing, you know, like David Paisley, who came on my show a few weeks back. They're they're interviewing Pat King. That's the interview that they want. And so they can all they can all say they're telling a small bit of the truth, but they're fixating on the things that will basically confirm the government bias and confirm the elite bias. What would you say an alternative and more truthful narrative to the bit by bit one we see emerging from the media this this week actually would be? Well, I'm working on it. So far, it doesn't exist. And, and early on, I, I figured I, I have to tell this story in a way. And, you know, exactly what form that was going to take, I wasn't sure if it would be a radio documentary, a lengthy series. I'm, I'm leaning now towards putting this in book form, just because when I got down to it, I was finding just how much there was. I mean, we saw here the lengths through which the political elites will go to really create this idea that liberty is toxic. You saw media bias, the mainstream media putting its agenda in full force. You saw a, a story in Canada that we haven't seen really in, in generations, which is Canadians taking control and resisting government in a way that just does not happen here to the same level. So there are a lot of different stories that all unfolded under that banner of the convoy. And also then you have the the achievements of the convoy, both large and small, from ousting Aaron O'Toole and, and reframing where the Conservative Party of Canada is right now to the changes that we've seen in a number of provinces that I, I think are undeniably connected to the convoy as far as lifting restrictions go. So there were a lot of things here. And again, if you were to go and read news coverage of it, you'd think that the whole thing was defined by someone tying a flag around a Terry Fox statue's neck or you know stealing food from the homeless or desecrating a war memorial. And all of these things are, are misrepresented and also just completely, completely offside from the main overarching narratives of this thing. This is an important point that I wanted to ask you because I know you're working on a project and figuring out how to tell the story yourself. And as a journalist who was there and covered a lot of it, you're, you're uniquely positioned to do this. How will you frame... So there's the, the broad overarching narrative, and I would agree with you, having been there and interviewed a lot of those people myself as well, that you know you could, you could talk to a couple of hundred people before you found a Pat King type. But how do you respond then to, to folks like the CBC at the Fifth Estate who are finding somebody who was at the convoy? I saw Pat King there the day I met you there, so I do know he was there and, and you know has a tendency to say pretty reprehensible things and is obviously a jackass. So what do you do with somebody who says, this guy that we have found, he, he represents the entire convoy? How do you push back? And how do you push back against the argument that, okay, well, there's lots of different people here. You're finding the people that best support your view, and they're finding the people that best support their view? Yeah, it's a good question. And when I went back on, I think it was the Thursday before this ended, I, I thought we'd have a little bit more time before the whole thing wrapped up. And, and talking to a lot of the organizers, including, by the way, David Paisley, who you just mentioned, they all sort of thought they could get to the weekend and they could get their people in, have a big old party, and then they'd probably lose the ground that they had by Tuesday. So I thought when I was there, I would have a bit more time to do what I went to Ottawa to do. One of the projects that I wanted to take up there was just to take an hour, an hour and a half and go around and talk to people and say, who's Pat King? And just ask people at the convoy who Pat King was. I, again, this is not scientific by any stretch, but the few people that I did speak to would have had no idea, or if they learned about him, it was through CBC coverage. He was not connected to the people in the convoy in a, in a meaningful way. 
And that doesn't mean he didn't seize the narrative and put out lots of material on BitChute or whatever the other platform is, Telegram or something like that. But, but you have to look at, in a grassroots movement, what's driving the people who are there. And I think that's been the biggest failing in a lot of the coverage here. Is they, they've attempted to create an environment in which there is just one spokesperson or one face you can pin on this, which you just can't because a lot of people, in fact, almost all of the people that I spoke to there were motivated by the idea, not by any of the central organizers. You've been covering stories like this for, for a long time, and, and, and you've been reporting on news in Canada for I don't even know how many years uh, anymore. And what would you say the, the media's role in highlighting anybody who, 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 in their view, smacks of white supremacy is? Because in my view, like in this country, white supremacy is not a big problem. And the last time a white supremacist worldview was perpetrated on an institutional scale, it was primarily liberal governments enshrining the residential schools to destroy indigenous culture, which is something that Stephen Harper apologized for. But with regards to run-of-the-mill people who actually hold these kinds of views, it almost seems like the, the demand from the media far outstrips the supply. And as such, when these people do crop up, they're primarily made famous by the media rather than by any large number of followers. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think one aspect of this that I, I found interesting that would just not be conveyed at all was the level of diversity. This is whole, this whole thing we're supposed to hold up as our strength, the great priority of Justin Trudeau's government, the genuine diversity that was in the crowd, specifically in two groups. One was Quebecers and French Canadians. Now, we don't necessarily think of them as a, as a minority group in the sense of, of other minority groups, but it is significant that they were joining forces with a movement that was predominantly English language and emanating from the rest of Canada because they typically don't get along those two groups. And the big one was indigenous people. The number of indigenous people from all across the country, from different nations that were there supporting the Freedom Convoy was was insane. And I, I've never seen that at a non-Indigenous event, at a non-Indigenous protest movement. And talking to a lot of them, what they were saying was that, you know, we understand the idea of government trampling on freedom. We understand the idea of government oppression. And for others, it was very micro. Indigenous people have lower vaccine uptake than non-Indigenous people. So therefore, they're more disproportionately affected by vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. And, and again, for all that we're supposed to talk about all of these indigenous issues and reconciliation that even that didn't trigger the government to say we should listen to these people what do you think what sort of successes do you think can be fairly attributed to the convoy because you also see this debate that crops up right afterwards there's the obvious things that the convoy did which is the removal of Aaron O'Toole and, and as you pointed out, a sort of a, a restructuring and reframing of the way the Conservative Party of Canada views the idea of freedom. And then there's also, in, in rapid succession, you had sort of the vax tax in, in Quebec disappear, and then Saskatchewan, Alberta, all these places lifting their restrictions. Now, an argument can be made that a lot of these Conservative premiers like Scott Moe and Jason Kenney only put these restrictions in under massive pressure from the health bureaucrats and from the city dwellers and didn't want to in the first place and simply used the convoy as a good excuse to begin doing what they already wanted to do. I suppose that would still be an argument for saying the convoy was the catalyst they needed. What do you think can be fairly attributed to the convoy in terms of public policy change on the vaccine issue? So before public policy, I, I think that what the convoy did very early on, before it even arrived in Ottawa, was mainstreaming opposition to vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. People forget that as recently as a couple of months ago, 
people had no voice in Ottawa, in Parliament, that was speaking up on these issues. Yes, you had Maxime Bernier who was doing it very vocally, but but he himself has been marginalized by the media and by the political class. So conservatives who did want to talk about this were sidelined. The conservative leader had no interest in it. And remember, wouldn't even say whether he would meet with truckers. And now you've got a conservative leadership race in which many of the candidates were out there on the streets with the truckers. So that in and of itself is a victory because it established that, you know, yes, we may be in a minority position in some cases, but we are not a fringe position. So so mainstreaming political opposition. And I also think a lot of the provinces that move to do things very swiftly, like Alberta overnight abandoning its vaccine passport and putting in a clear roadmap to get rid of other restrictions. Ontario doing the same. The natural counterpoint to this is, well, cases were going down, governments were already doing this anyway. But I would challenge that by saying that even the governments that were on the roadmap to reopening had no interest in providing clear, concrete deadlines. All of them did within a few days of the convoy's arrival in Ottawa. Final question on the convoy before we segue into the leadership race and assorted topics is one of the the really interesting things that the convoy turned into was a Rorschach test on media. So on one hand, you had alternative conservative media like True North and the coverage provided by yourself and others. On the other hand, you had the media that just seemed determined to play to to form, right? So you had Andrew Coyne just going off about, about the convoy almost every day, if not hourly, on Twitter. You had virtually the entire mainstream media kind of beclowning itself by insisting on caricaturing these people in the worst possible terms with, I will say, a couple of honorable mentions. I think Matt Gurney tried to do a decent job. He talked to a lot of people, although... Even then, I thought some of some of the things that he said were things he was looking for when he talked about the hard men lurking at the edges of fires and stuff, which, which you know, I was there for as long as he was, and I didn't see those people. And then you had what, one of the only sane people who is liberal, but whose coverage was phenomenal, which I would argue was Jonathan Kay. He was bang on on almost everything. Most recently this week, that whole story about that, that arsonist who tried to close the doors of a hotel or an apartment building and, and set a fire, right? And the thing is, is that like Jonathan Kay just immediately called like BS. He's like, here's a thing that for sure didn't happen, right? Like an arsonist runs into somebody, helpfully expresses how involved with the convoy he is, and then tries to set a fire on camera moments later. But Coin and all of these guys just instantly jumped on it and were like, see, violence is breaking out. And Kay has proven right on, on basically everything he had to say. So what's your analysis of the way the media responded to all of this? Yeah, I mean, it's clear they had a story already and everything was filtered through that lens. I mean, if you want to know one example of this, just look at all of the panels that have taken place since then that are very introspective and navel-gazing by media about just how poorly they're treated. There was a panel that Carlton put on called Journalism Under Siege. There was one that was put together by some other school, maybe Ottawa this week, called me about mean tweets. They literally had that in the name. Like, if I were to write a parody of this, I would call it journalists and mean tweets, but they seriously called it that. The fact that journalists were rounded, they only went out with security. And admittedly, I, I saw some really tense situations where people were surrounding mainstream media journalists. People were heckling them, shouting all sorts of obscenities, getting in your face. And I, I condemned that when I saw it and I condemned it after. But I also think that the media wanted to make the story about them. And these people became the spokespeople unofficially of the convoy because they cast it in a bad light.
Oh yeah, if you wanted to know who the heroes of the convoy were, just ask the reporters, right? I saw a few of the things you did, especially on the last day. There was a couple of CBC and CTV guys where you'd have somebody coming up who was clearly a bit buzzed and was, you know, screaming F-bombs at them. But, I, like, I work in the pro-life movement. That just is the norm. And as a journalist, you know... Like they 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 were acting like they were airdropping into Fallujah or you know under Russian bombardment in Kiev. It's like no, dude, it was a it was an irritated trucker who'd had a couple of beers telling you to go f yourself. Not pleasant, but like, pardon me if I don't think it's that big a deal considering what journalists deal with around the world. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the journalists that were just a couple of weeks later in Ukraine have complained less about their working conditions. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. So, like, let's move from the convoy directly into the new conservative situation that's been brought about by the convoy, and that's the conservative leadership race. And I want to start off because I know you're a libertarian guy, and in the past you've endorsed and you've interviewed and you've talked a lot to to Maxim Bernier, who's now the head of the People's Party of Canada. I had him on this podcast a few weeks back. So what are your thoughts about about his chances now, and how do you think he's responded to, to the recent developments? Do you think that he's going to lead the PPC into being a successful party? Or do you think that rather than this being an ideological project or a vanity project, that it's in fact a, a spite project, and he's kind of intent on destroying the Conservative Party of Canada? There's a lot to that, and I, and I think multiple things can be true. I, I do think that it's a spite project. I know that anytime there is an opening in the Conservative leadership, which there has been twice since he became the leader of the PPC, he said very quickly he has no interest in going back. It's a morally and intellectually corrupt party and, and so on. He's used that line going back to 2019. And the one thing that I would point out about that is that for Bernier to say that, he's basically saying that he has no interest in the Conservative Party that he served in under Stephen Harper, the Conservative Party that was big enough for people like him and for people like Lisa Raid and for people like Pierre Polyev and for you know people on all sides of the party, is that he, he either doesn't have an interest in that or, or doesn't think it's possible. Because I, I do think, I, and I, I've talked to Pierre Polyev about this, I asked him about re-engaging PPC supporters, and he says, yeah, absolutely, that's a priority. He wants to do that. Leslin Lewis, very similar, has said that re-engaging PPC supporters is something she wants to do. And, and I've got to tell you, when I've interviewed or covered conservative politics with a small see I get a lot of PPC people that say well if Pierre Polyev were the leader maybe or if Leslin Lewis were the leader maybe so if you have an election in which Maxime Bernier has lost the perfect conservative leader for him to go up against which is Aaron O'Toole I don't know what it's going to mean for that party now, what's really interesting is how serious do you think Bernier is? Because he's a political animal. I, I don't think like it's probably going to be very difficult for him to engage. And we see time and time again with these leadership races that people who've been gone forever come back like, you know, ghosts of uh, of majorities past, like Jean Charest running for the, for the, the leadership. So do you think that, that, that Bernier is kind of painting himself into a corner? Like if you've got a Pulver or, or say, a Leslin Lewis would be willing to offer a general amnesty to, to you, know, you know, those who abandon the party and publicly critiqued it in your mind should should he take it or does he have a point because i will say that despite the fact that i've got plenty of problems with maxim i do appreciate that he has the guts to address a lot of topics that um, traditional conservatives don't seem to be able to address until something like the convoy shows up in their city 
I mentioned earlier that on the anti-lockdown, anti-mask, anti-vaccine mandate stuff, whichever of those you want to focus on, there had been no mainstream political opposition to them. I, I would take a party like the PPC speaking up about these things, even if they aren't represented in Ottawa, more than the alternative, which is no one talking about them, which is having no representation for this. And, and I do think that the PPC is important because you, you need a party in a way that's going to force the conservatives to play to their right flank. And that's the thing. And actually, I I should take that back. You don't need a party to do that. You need a a force of some kind to do that. And leadership races are very good for that. If you have, like in 2020, Aaron O'Toole being the second most liberal of four candidates, he has to, in theory, be pulled to the right because he realizes that people like Derek Sloan and Leslie Lewis had support that gave him the victory. Now, obviously, the what happened to Aaron O'Toole after he won the leadership challenges that thesis a little bit. But I, I think that the conservatives need to be reminded that their base is not on their left, their base is on their right. And in the case of Maxime Bernier, that forces, if a conservative leader is going to be serious, them to pay attention to that group. Because he's actually been pretty open about having similar pro-life policies to those that Leslie Lewis has advocated for, and he's been the only person in politics, period, who's been willing to talk about, you know, the scandal of giving puberty blockers to prepubescent kids. I have no illusions about him becoming prime minister or, or frankly, even getting reelected as an MP. Most people want to send somebody from one of the majority parties to parliament. But I do think that his voice has been worth having around. When we're looking at this current leadership race, I know you, you've endorsed Bernier in the past when he was running for conservative leader. As a journalist, are you remaining publicly neutral or are you willing to tell us who your preference is? this time around i'm remaining neutral for a couple of reasons number one because i i am very interested in what this conservative leadership race becomes relative to 2020 we already have more leadership candidates that have entered and i think that's important i think you need to reflect and respect the different wings of the party and and so on I, and also i just don't want to neutralize my ability to cover this and have these people on my show by by putting a stand forward i mean certainly i'm on the record as caring about a number of issues I'm pro-life, I'm pro-gun, I'm pro-free speech, I'm pro-defunding CBC. There are a lot of issues that that will certainly inform my coverage, but no, I'm not, not going to say which way I'm leaning. I, and to be frank, I'm not leaning anyway. Maybe you can give us your political analysis of, of what Patrick Brown is thinking and we, why he thought re-entering politics at this particular moment was a good idea. Well, I, I think he has always wanted something bigger than to be the mayor of Brampton. And the fact that he was going to be the premier of Ontario had events not taken a different form going back to 2018 has never quite left him. And, and, you know, you look at the timing of his response to running. He had this CTV lawsuit, which has been going on for the better part of four years. This finally gets settled. And a few few days later, he's launched a campaign. Now, really, the the settlement of this doesn't change all that much. It, It doesn't change the overarching narrative that people had about Patrick Brown. And it doesn't address the stories that had nothing to do with sexual misconduct that came out, that were of a financial nature, that were dealing with things. Things that, that, again, were not part of that lawsuit. So I, I don't think he has actually cleared the runway for himself as much as he thinks. The question will come down to how heated people are prepared to make this leadership race and, and in debates what they're prepared to throw at him. Well, and the other thing is, is that even even the, the CTV apology was basically, like, we're sorry, the girl we accused you of being creepy with was 19 and not 18. As I understand, all of the public allegations, at least not the ones that his caucus was worried about, is he was never accused of any criminal behavior. He was accused of creepy behavior. 
And as such, there's not really much of a material difference once you've re- once you read through what CTV retracted. There's not a lot of material difference between the story that broke and the amended story that that exists. And like it is a political act of political genius to you know basically he just sued CTV like crazy, you know, for an enormous amount of money, and then waited till he needed to be cleared, and then basically offered to drop the drop the lawsuit in exchange for a minor concession that he could portray as exoneration. You think he'll get away with it? It's already become heated right out of the gate. I mean, Pierre Polyev going after Patrick Brown, Patrick Brown going after Pierre Polyev, Jean Charest trying to stay above the fray, but he's getting dragged down by Pierre Polyev as well. I do think that people in politics tend to have long memories. And I, I think at this point, the perception seems to be that he's not going anywhere in the race by a lot of people that I've spoken to. Whether that's correct or not, again, time will tell. But if he starts to show some real momentum, I, I think you're going to start to see the knives getting sharpened and coming out very swiftly. Let's look at Pierre now, because obviously, according to the polling data, the race is, is his to lose. And he presents a bit of a conundrum for a lot of more socially conservative people like myself, because on one hand, he is fundamentally a politician. I do think he probably has small conservative instincts, but he came out on mandates. He came out on all these issues when it was safe to do so. And if you look at the timeline, he did so in each instance after Leslie Lewis already had, he just was far more adept and did so directly in front of cameras, right? But she was speaking out on on, on, on the mandate issue and the coercive nature of the vaccine regime before he was. He kind of waited till it was a bandwagon that he could climb onto and he could use to bash his way into a, into a leadership race. That said, I think he has far more conservative instincts than Aaron O'Toole does. I don't think that when he does talk about freedom, you know, he's completely making it up. I think he probably believes a lot of what he says. That said, of course, he's not a social conservative. And my difficulty, my difficulty with that isn't that he isn't a social conservative so much as the fact that he used to be one. Like I know, like he went to National Campus Life Network, the the major student pro-life conference where people who aren't just pro-life, but are pro-life activists go you know, back when my, my former boss and colleague Stephanie Gray was going to NC Land. So when you go from somebody who's involved in the pro-life movement in an activist capacity, and then you've got a very good social conservative voting record, and you go from there to somebody who's disavowing all those views, that's usually more of a problem. Somebody who used to be one of us is usually somebody who has a specific disdain for, for social conservatives. So what are your thoughts on his, his appeal to those constituencies? I think that social conservatives in general are tired of being lied to, but ultimately will take what they can get. And that's true of any group. That's not a meant to be a slight at, at social conservatives, of which I, I count myself one, although I, I disagree in, in some process issues with a lot of other social conservatives. But And I think Aaron O'Toole is a great example of this. Obviously, social conservatives were preferring Derek Sloan and Leslie Lewis. But when it comes down to it and your practical outcomes are Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole, they're going to go with the guy that's offering you nothing but free votes on conscience rights. And and even though Aaron O'Toole rolled, looking back, I don't think social conservatives would have voted any differently, except for maybe saying on principle, they wouldn't rank a third choice on their ballot. But then where are they with Peter McKay, which isn't any better. So I I do think that that's the challenge. But I also think that it's it's incumbent upon social conservatives to really do a lot of the work on the caucus issues and not on the leaders necessarily. And I know that our friends at Right Now have done a great job of this because, you know, ultimately the leader, as we see with Aaron O'Toole, is accountable to their caucus. And if you have a leader that is telling their caucus, you don't get to vote the way that you want to, you don't get to vote in accordance with your conscience, a caucus is going to turn on that leader. 
And, and that's exactly what happened. So I, I think that for Patrick Brown, if he makes any pledge to social conservatives, people should treat it as though it's not worth the paper it's written on, because that's what his previous commitments of that nature have been. And like Pierre, he, he was a social conservative until he wasn't, right? He, he actually had a perfect voting record on the issue. I don't know. I know, I know Pierre went to, to, a, to a, a student pro-life conference back in the day because I know somebody who went with him. I don't know if Brown ever did something like that. I just know he was one of you know, those single backbench MPs that did the sorts of things he ended up being accused of publicly. Now, that kind of brings us, and I, and I get to her last, just because you know, and anybody who's read me over the last two years knows that I've been a fan of Leslie Lewis for quite some time, mainly because I believe her approach to social conservative issues is very, very wise. She recognizes that Canada is a very pluralistic country. She recognizes that a large number of Canadians, Canadians by all of the polling data available, are actually closer in position to you and I as social conservatives than they are to Justin Trudeau as a radical progressive. But the vast majority of them don't vote or engage on those issues. And what I think she does with her No Hidden Agenda platform, which she defended brilliantly against journalists like Evan Solomon, is she finds social conservative issues that reflect the broad majority of Canadian public opinion, and then she defends them, which and defends them publicly and won't back down, which kind of denudes the idea that, oh, she's de- definitely just a, a hidden agenda type person because she's very upfront. She doesn't mumble about these policies. She's willing to defend them. And there's been one of these in each of the last couple of conservative leadership races, right? When the the, the one that Sheer won, you had two SOCON candidates. You had Brad Trost, who was pretty intentionally abrasive about things, and Pierre Lemieux, who I thought was the, the good SOCON candidate who was seeking to connect with Canadians and, and put forward policies the majority would like. So his line then was, Canadian values are social conservative values, and he could back it with polling, with policies that people liked. And then it was the same thing with, with Sloan versus Leslin. Sloan was a lot more shrill. He was a lot more willing to take positions that you know the mainstream of Can- Canadians didn't like, whereas her goal was to pull Canadians into the social conservative movement by explaining how they already were socially conservative on the issues she was putting forward. They just didn't realize it yet. What's your view of of, of her platform and her candidacy in general, because I, I would say it's Pierre's to lose, but what do you think her chances are? Well, I think that what she is doing this time around, I mean, last time she was a political unknown. She had been a one-time failed candidate that no one had really heard of before she launched a leadership bid. So that she's become such a, a symbolic cultural force in conservative politics in Canada is, I, I think, a great testament to her and her message. This time around, it's a bit different. It, it's not a novelty this time. She's a serious contender by virtue of being an MP, by virtue of being a, a former leadership candidate. Uh, and I think that what's going to happen is she's going to wield a, a great deal of kingmaking influence again if she's not herself the victor. And again, I, I'm with you. I, I, see it, I see it as being difficult for her to win, but anything is possible with ranked ballots, especially if you get more candidates in the race. The one thing I would say on this, though, looking at at Leslie Lewis, is that she did uh, very well last time around relative to her status and even just on its own. And at the same time, she also was instrumental in Aaron O'Toole being the leader. Leslie Lewis is the reason that Peter McKay did not lead the Conservatives into the 2021 election. And her reward for that was being shoved to the back of the back of the backbench when she was elected as an MP. She was completely sidelined. And I don't think that people would tolerate that this time around if she's unsuccessful. I think she needs to be a very key player in the shadow cabinet and eventually in the cabinet of a Conservative government if she's not the one leading it. 
How do you think her chances or if are improved by the fact that Patrick Brown and Pierre obviously see each other as the key threat? And they're already stabbing as 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 hard as they can at each other. And as you pointed out, John Charest is uh, is not joining in that fray, although he's he's catching some flack anyways. But sometimes I wonder what his appeal to the broad conservative base is. Right, his announcement video looked like an ISIS hostage video taken on a shaky hand cam. It was really bad. And you know, granted, maybe some of Pierre's videos are a bit overdone, but there's a happy medium there, bro. Do you think that Patrick and Pierre going to war against each other would help Leslin or have no effect whatsoever on her chances? I mean, certainly if if, peop, if, if it becomes just a, a bare knuckle brawl, someone who is unblemished is going to look very attractive to voters, especially when they start talking about just readiness for the election, party unity, that sort of stuff. And, and in a ranked ballot, I, I think that a lot of her supporters, just from what I've seen anecdotally here, a lot of her supporters are going to put Pierre behind her. A lot of Pierre's supporters are going to put her behind him. So if something happens where one of them is dropped off the ballot early, they're going to have a big chunk that's going to the other, I suspect. And, you know, Leslin Lewis might benefit from Roman Babber, who's been fairly strong on anti-lockdown stuff. And, and to his credit, not a social conservative, but he's done the free vote thing and has been very unequivocal that he does not believe as a leader it would be his job to tell anyone how to vote so you've you've got three people there that are appealing in some way to the, the same type of voter not entirely there there's some areas where it doesn't overlap but I, I see that as being a powerful force for any one of the three whichever is in the strongest position of the three because if you look at what Patrick Brown and Pierre Poliver are doing just on Twitter right now, calling each other liars, et cetera, like what are the chances the leaders debates don't get ugly? Oh, I mean, I, I'd say very minimal at this point. Like th- this is the fight. Like you've got Pierre Polyev who's been dropping even unprompted the idea that Jean Charest is a liberal, Jean Charest is a liberal to the point where it's like, you know, the old sir, this is a Wendy's thing. Uh, and and then you have, uh, you have Jean Charest who's trying to say, I'm the one who can win. I'm the one who can win. Well, it's all well and good to talk about winning the general election. That doesn't help help you if you can't win your party's leadership. And, and I saw some polling to that effect this week that says, yeah, Jean Charest might be popular among voters in Ontario and Quebec to some extent, but he's not popular among conservative members at this point. So he still has to focus on winning over that battle first. What are your earliest political memories? Like mine was, I, I went to a Stockwell Day rally in 2000. Like Jean Charest, like he wasn't even, he wasn't, he was gone before then. And I'm in my mid thirties now. You know what I mean? Like he's like, what do you think his thinking is getting back into the race? Because he is a political nobody by virtue just of of passage of time. And and in an age of, of, of social media and the tyranny of the present, like people have long forgotten about him or am I missing something? I mean, in, in Quebec, certainly he'd be remembered because he was a premier there more recently. But even then, we're talking about more than a decade since he left. As far as having a, a federal role, I mean, the point that I put to him when I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago is, is that he ran a party which no longer exists and, and which for a generation of voters has never existed in the time they've been voting. So he, he's got to tell people who he is. He's got to brand himself and, and not let that process be slower than his opponent's efforts to brand him by pinning on him whatever policy they don't like or whatever time from his public sector, like working with Huawei, they want to hold against him. But but that is a, a big challenge because it, it does seem in some ways like he's trying to do the Trudeau thing. I mean, people forget Trudeau was out of politics. Trudeau Sr. was out of politics, came back, 
and his last term was his most politically successful. I wouldn't say the best for the country, but it had the most achievements for him politically and, and personally. I feel like Jean Charest is trying to do that same thing where, you know, if you, if you just come out from retirement, people assume it's because you, you've got something to offer. Moving from the, the conservative candidates trying to kill each other off to what the progressive left in this country is up to, we see that today, so we're, we're having this conversation on Tuesday, the show airs tomorrow. Jagmeet Singh has just cut a deal with, with Justin Trudeau, and Justin Trudeau wants to, he says, I'm, I'm governed till 2025, and then beyond the next election, he said. Where do you think this puts us? There was already a lot of speculation. The guy's done three elections. Maybe he'll turn it over to Christia Freeland or something like that. Do you think this news that we got today changes anything, or what are your thoughts on what just went down? Trudeau, again, has been unequivocal. He says he's leading the country into the next election. I mean, he's talking about basically being the William Lyon Mackenzie King, the, the competitor for the, the honor of, of the longest serving prime minister. That seems to be what he's going for. You know, the NEP has always been shilling for the liberals for a number of reasons. Number one, they know that any chance they have at getting concessions on policy is going to be from the liberals and not from the conservatives. So, and they know they're not going to win. And the other part is that they have been just perpetually in financial troubles and unable to afford running good election campaigns. So if elections are so close together, as is the norm in minority parliaments, they just aren't able to compete. So the NDP benefits from stability if they can just claim to their people that they're getting some form of policy. But this is like the worst deal imaginable for the NDP because they, they I mean, Jack Layton years ago had negotiated, it never ended up happening, but he had negotiated seats in cabinet for NDP and members of parliament. Jagmeet Singh has negotiated for quarterly meetings and policies that Justin Trudeau had already campaigned on and pledged anyway. He has got nothing. And he's trumpeting this as a victory for Canada and for the NDP. I just don't see it. Can you explain what Jagmeet's appeal to, to NDP voters is? Because, you know, Jack Layden, sure, he's just one of those politicians who had it, right? Jack Layden, his own character, his own personality, combined with the historical circumstances, you know, put the NDP briefly in opposition status. Uh, then you had Tom Mulcair, who I thought was like a, like a pretty good leader. He was a fierce prosecutor on, on the floor of the House of Commons, but they knifed him in the back immediately. But Jagmeet hangs on like a barnacle despite far worse performances. So how do we explain Jagmeet's ability to remain political leader while while Tom Mulcair falls and, 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 and how, how many conservative leaders has he survived at this point? One of the big differences, I think, between the conservatives and the NDP is that the conservatives have tasted victory before. So they understand the idea of electability and they're motivated by electability and winning. The NDP have never won. And ultimately, as a result, they, they don't have in their DNA that idea of what constitutes a victory and, and what do we have to do to win. So I, I think that the NDP has some pragmatists in it, like Jack Layton and certainly like Thomas Mulcair. But at the same time, the NDP also were, they're basically motivated to be more like the Greens in, in pursuing ideological purity on things that aren't going to get them votes and aren't going to get them influence. And, and I think that that's the problem. And, and Jagmeet Singh very much appeals to that wing of the party, the, the kind that are basically like a, a replica of a college NDP chapter in that they sit around and they talk about why property rights are evil and why gun rights are bad and why we need to tax the rich and ban billionaires and, and you know, play video games with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, and at the end of it, all you're going to get are your, your two dozen seats. 
All right, Andrew. Final question is, I know you've been interviewing all of the the leaders. They've been phenomenal interviews, especially those with, with, with Pierre and, and, and Leslin. You ask them the tough questions, even though it's probably tempting not to when you're talking to some of these people. So as a final question, where can our listeners here find your work over there? Yes, thank you. So all the interviews are over at tnc.news. That is True North. And I also do a newsletter at Substack, which is the creatively titled andrewlawton.substack.com. <laughs> Thanks for coming on again, man. Hey, anytime. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Andrew Lawton. Thanks for joining the show this week. If you'd like to check out past shows or subscribe to listen to future shows, please head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You'll find the Van Maren show there and you can download or subscribe to our content wherever you listen to your podcasts. Again, thanks so much for listening this week. We hope you'll join us again next week.